Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Mick Hughes, an Australian physio who consults at the Melbourne Sports Medicine Centre and is very well known for his expertise and education on ACL injury management. Mick, in this episode, will be sharing some highly pragmatic and practical advice for dealing with ACL rehab. And whilst he's a clinical professional, the content shared will be applicable for physios, coaches and sports scientists alike. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vold Performance, makers of the Airbands, the world's first fully wireless, automated and affordable BFR training cuff. With Airbands, you can reduce the time and intensity required to safely and naturally build muscle and increase strength. Equipped with intelligent calibration tools and controlled via the Airbands mobile app, the cuffs accurately inflate to your personalised pressure zone, safely restricting blood flow and increasing the limb's muscle response to weight stimulus. There's no more cords, no more manual pump, and no more guesswork. The airbands are a safe and smarter BFR option. So to find out more, head over to our sponsor, vodperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald. And without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Mick Hughes. Mick, welcome to the show, mate. Thanks for coming on for a chat. Thanks, Andy. Uh, yeah, pleasure to uh, pleasure to be here, and thanks uh, for asking me to come on and yeah, talk talk shop. Pleasure. And you've amassed uh, a pretty big following online on Twitter and Instagram for your physio accounts. Um, but for the listeners discovering you now, perhaps could you share your background and just create some context as to kind of you know where you've come from, what you've done, and, and bring us up to the current day? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's it's been a it's been an interesting journey, one that I've. Um, I didn't sort of think would evolve um, to this, but it's uh, um, look. Long long story short, I'm I'm a sports physiotherapist. I've just recently completed um, my um, uh, sports um, physiotherapy titling here in Australia, so I can I can call myself a sports physiotherapist. And um, I've also got a degree in exercise science, which I did in the early 2000s. And you know, prior to that, I was, a, I was a personal trainer straight out of high school. So, you know, exercise and strength and conditioning has been a, a big part of uh, my life for a long time. And then I always felt that um, I wanted to be a physiotherapist and and sort of, you know, help people improve their function and, and improve their quality of life. And help them achieve their goals. So um, I entered physio school back in 2006 and then, then completed my physiotherapy studies and then subsequently did some post-grad training. So, yeah, it's been a bit of a journey. And then, you know, a few years ago I moved to Melbourne with my wife and um, at the time my, my daughter, um, who was one year old at the time, and um, sort of fell into a job where I was probably a bit quiet, as, as you are when you start out in a clinic. And I thought, well, no one really knows me here in Melbourne and I probably need to find myself um, a way to get busy. So I started writing some blogs and started a couple of social media pages and started sharing some videos and, and sharing them on, on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And, um, and then slowly over time, it's sort of grown into something that I've um, really enjoyed doing and, and educating um, other health professionals, but also educating patients as well with some of the posts that I put out there. Um, and having an evidence-based slant to everything that I, I put up there as much as possible. So, um, yeah, we're, we're here now in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic. And, um, yeah, it's, um, it's been an interesting ride, especially these last sort of uh, six months. Um, so, yeah, that's, I guess, me in a nutshell. I like to share some evidence-based information, mate. So hopefully, uh, 
that, hopefully that gets your listeners up to up to speed if they haven't uh, heard heard before. Yeah, no doubt. And I think you know because of lockdown and COVID, I think a lot of clinicians more recently have started podcasts or webinar events or been writing uh, blogs and starting kind of social media type activities up. How do you kind of uh, balance out your clinical practice and finding the time to create content as often as you do? Because, you know, from a selfish point of view, I find that quite an interesting yeah. thing to ask people because when you're, when you're busy seeing patients, it's quite hard to, to fit in the, the other stuff, if you call it that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's, it is, it's interesting. And I think in a way, um, living in Melbourne has probably allowed me to do that. Like I, you know, I was always active on social media before when I lived in other places around Australia. Um, I've previously lived in uh, Townsville in North Queensland and uh, Newcastle, and I grew up in the country. And um, I, um, I just didn't have that time to sit down and do it. Whereas in Melbourne, I've got a lot of time on public transport. And that's where I do my work. <laughs> so all my social media posts, I'm, you know, like I'm reflecting on the previous day's work or I'm thinking about who I'm seeing that day. Um, and I've got time. I've got, you know, half an hour um, to sort of sit rather than sort of, you know, you know, you know do mindless Facebooking. I'm, um, I'm actually thinking about content or what things I could produce for people and educate people on. Um, also, the fact that I've been, you know, doing some postgraduate study for the last three or four years too, it, it's enabled me to get access to online databases of information. Um, so if I'm writing a paper, for example, uh, on ACLs, um, I'd be thinking, okay, look, I could use this um, information that I'm gathering out of a research paper and use that for content. Um, and that's sort of how the last three or four years have been for me. I've been able to sort of double up and you know, learn and, and grow as a clinician and as a person, um, but also to share that information um, because often a lot of that information is hidden by paywalls. Um, and so a lot of people that aren't, you know, at a university, for example, we're having a conversation before that, you know, you're, you're studying again and you're, um, you've now got tremendous access to, you know, full text papers that, you know, everyday physios who don't, have that access won't be able to see so it's kind of like you know it's not your job but you know it could be something that's really valuable to the to the greater community if you can share that information that's what I felt my responsibility could be is that if I've got this access to great information let's share it um and that's sort of how it's how it's all evolved Mm. no you're right I definitely agree with you and I think for anyone listening that's in academics training currently you almost don't always realize at the time that the papers that you've got access to and the resources that you have, um, you're probably not going to have in a typical clinical sports team necessarily. Um, A lot of people kind of lose access to be able to get some of the papers that they actually want to read. Um, That's right. And you look at some of the um, information in that knowledge translation space and I've, you know, there's always a few tweets here and there that, um, and the and the numbers you know vary from post to post or whoever's um, sharing that information. But on average, it takes um, somewhere between you know, ten to seventeen years for a lot of knowledge and and research to be adopted into clinical practice. And that lag time is incredible to think that if it takes ten to seventeen years for a, a research paper to then to be used clinically by every clinician, that's such a delay in that research um, that could be effectively used uh, tomorrow. Um, so that that's where I think we, we need to help with that l- lack of um, uh, knowledge translation and that uh, that lag in translation we need to help um, speed up. 
And I think the social media is interesting. I think it's sometimes, uh, and this isn't in reference to you, but, um, you know, sort of familiar conversations that we've all probably had, but I think social media gets a bad rap because we, people pinch ideas of exercises or, or, or you know, they see content and try and copy ideas from it occasionally or, or debate what they've seen online. But I actually think that social media is quite valuable because you can see what are people currently doing. And I think sometimes from an academical research standpoint, that yep. can then inspire a question because you see what is actually being done in current practice or you've seen a snapshot of what some people are doing in practice and that yeah. can inspire you to then academically follow up with it. Yeah, I agree. And I think you're right. There's a lot of people that do um, post videos um, and they often get, you know, bagged out on on you know, social media. But, you know, you, all you're seeing in those videos or especially videos, um, it's, they're like a five or ten second grab or a 30 second post. And the context behind those videos is often not uh, not seen or heard. And that's where um, it can social media can get a bad rap but you're right it's it's information being shared in real time and it can stimulate conversations and it can get people um critically thinking about what what is there right now and how we can improve ourselves as clinicians i yeah i, I think um social media is a, is a great uh tool uh, when used right and you know when used uh, effectively and the right questions um are being asked um yeah it's 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 a great resource when used in the right way yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'd encourage, we'll link out to your um, your accounts at the end, but I'd encourage all the listeners to to follow your content. And I think, I think actually, like, there is just some really useful accounts out there, even academically, like fellow yeah. Aussie, my, Michael Giacumis, he he has a sort of social handle where he, he'll, he'll post kind of like an update or a, a review very simply in an infographic of a paper. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I love that because you can just get a couple of the key points to then decide if you want to go and read that paper properly. So yeah, I think exactly. you know, content's not good nor bad. It's just, it, you know, it depends what you're reading and you've just got to look at it like you do with anything with sort of critical and open eyes at the same time. Yeah, 100%. I want to talk to you about um, ACLs, obviously, as you're on uh, as you're on the conversation for it. Um, yes. ACLs are a big area for you. And I think they're, they're one of the areas that's most talked about and researched as an injury in sport. And I think with that, a lot of the listeners will have a great deal of familiarity about the mechanisms, the management and the sort of typical rehab principles. And I think the risk with injuries that we're maybe more comfortable with or familiar with, at least, is that we don't always dip into the latest articles and updates as often as we could do. Um, So what I'd like to do is just ask you, you know, in this space, what is new or as an educator on ACL rehab, can you bring us up to date? as you've got your ear to the ground with, you know, things that maybe you're commonly updating clinicians on? Yeah, it's um, it's a really good question and you're right. There's so much um, information out there that, especially on ACL injuries, ACL reconstructions, different techniques, um, you know, looking at second ACL injury risk, uh, osteoarthritis, there's just such a, wide scope like you go into a PubMed or any kind of database and type in ACL and you'll just see so many um, so many uh, journals and references out there um, look I think in a, in a nutshell the, the, the big ones for me that I'm trying to you know, get people to think um, a bit more uh, deeply about is certainly the um, certainly the, the rehab principles and, and trying to actually 
improve rehab quality. And I think that's probably as a general rule. Um, and I'm not, I don't like bagging out physios. I am one. Um, and I know a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of physios do unfortunately get a, you know, some bit of a bad rap sometimes when it comes to late stage ACL rehab. But um, it, it's, I think the, the rehab uh, quality needs to improve quite a lot. And I think there's un, unfortunately a lot of, lot of fear about how, how hard we can push ACL injured patients and, and ultimately we've got to be preparing our ACL injured patients for the demands of sport and and that's where sometimes physio skills skill sets can only take us so far um, and and that teamwork with an exercise professional is really really important um, so look I, I think there's one paper in mind that that really speaks volumes in in that space um, you know I'm conscious of taking up you know hours of your time because I literally could talk for a couple of hours on this but there's one brilliant paper from 2019 by um Wouter Welling or Walter Wouter Welling um from uh the Netherlands um back in 2019 that basically looked at um a group of ACL reconstructed play uh, ACL reconstructed soccer players and compared them against a healthy control now what I loved about this paper was that their rehab program was there were no bells and whistles to it like you like we just talked about before on social media there's so much fancy circus tricks out there that it just can get get really distracting because as a clinician, you see it and you think, oh, I'm going to incorporate that into the plan. But it's like, you know, the context behind it is has been lost. And so, you know, I think we get distracted by the sexy stuff that's out there on social media sometimes when if you just program and progressively overload an ACL reconstructed patient and you listen to that knee and you check for swelling and, and you listen to the person and you listen to their story and their subjective symptoms and if they're okay with the load that you're putting on it, the exercises doesn't particularly matter. And this program was just full of squats, deadlifts, Bulgarian split squats, um, stiff-legged deadlifts, um, knee extensions, hamstring curls, calf raises, just standard um, you know, exercises that you'd come up with any gym. But it was progressively overloaded over time and they had like a really clear um, criteria of how many weeks they would um, progressively overload in a particular phase and they'd move on to phase two and they'd overload a little bit more and then they'd progressively overload in that range. And then phase three, they'd progressively overload. And by the time the end of phase four rolled around, the person was about 10 months and they were equally, um, when they had a look at that ACL reconstructed group of, of um, amateur soccer players, they were there was no significant differences in their quads and their hamstring strength when compared to a healthy group. And so I love that paper and which is what I want to, you know, obviously share. I try and share as much of this paper as possible because all it showed was that strengthen, um, strengthen the athlete and progressively overload sensibly over time and you're going to have a great result. You don't have to sort of muck around with really fancy exercises and, and, and effectively underload the patient for too long. So that, that's one really, really good one that springs to mind um, that I try to educate patients on is that, you know, that's just that simple strength and conditioning program that can be really helpful. Now, of course, if you don't have an experienced S&C uh, background, then it's important to be working with um, an appropriate um, expert in, in strength and conditioning. And that's where having a relationship and a good relationship with exercise professionals like S&C coaches or high performance managers or here in Australia, we've got exercise physiologists and you know, really good um, and experienced personal trainers. Like th- These are the guys uh, that should be helping you as a physiotherapist get the best out of your patients. So, so that was one that was one really, really good one that I liked. Um, the other one is, I guess, 
um, osteoarthritis. Um, and, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people when they have an ACL injury, the, the, the damage is kind of, you know, done in a way like, you know, the injury itself is often the catalyst to future change of uh, cartilage. Um, especially when, when we look at research in this space, they, they, they have shown in a really um, strong uh, systematic review and meta-analysis back in 2019 as well that showed that um, those that have had an ACL injury in the past compared to uh, someone that hasn't had an ACL injury or when comparing to the other side that has been uninjured, the risk of having OA development in 10 years is four times greater, so fourfold increased risk. Um, combine that with an ACL injury with a meniscus injury. Now, the meniscus is really, really important to future knee health. When you combine an ACL injury and a meniscus injury um, compared to an uninjured knee or an un- uninjured person, the increased risk of OA over 10 years is about six sixfold. Now, this is regardless of treatment choice to remember as well. So, you know, ultimately, you know, if you have a reconstruction or you have an, uh, a non-operative plan and you go conservative, you know, in, in inverted commas, also don't like the terminology conservative management. We can talk about that later if you want. But um, basically a non-operative plan and an ACL reconstruction, um, the chances of getting OA over 10 years are going to be the same. So and that that's often a myth that a person will come to me as a, as a patient, they'll come to me and say, look, I'm, I'm having a reconstruction or I've got a reconstruction planned. And um, I'm the, part of the reason being is that I want to avoid osteoarthritis in the future. And I was like, well, unfortunately, that's it, it may not happen and it's actually likely to happen regardless if you have a reconstruction or not. So if you're having a reconstruction to, to avoid arthritis, unfortunately, you, you're probably doing the wrong thing. Um, if you're looking to return back to a high-level pivoting sport, then – I, th- I think that's a consideration and it's a good consideration you're making, but it's also too something that you might um, be able to successfully nav- navigate without a reconstruction as well. So to give people treatment choices is also really important and that's that's a big thing I try to educate um, physiotherapists on as well and patients to say that, hey, an ACL injury doesn't always result in a reconstruction. Sometimes um, a person can manage it non-operatively, including returning back to uh, their pre-injury levels of sport. So there, there's a couple of things I think. Uh, I think that's probably enough for that one, unless you wanted to hear about my last <laughs> fatigue. <laughs> on, the, on, the, on your first point, I, I couldn't agree more, mate, about the value of doing simple methods really well. I think yeah. we're always, without anybody asking the question, we're always debating and talking about technique as a risk factor or whether it changes performance. But I think we miss the full picture there because I think, especially in rehab, the execution's key. And yeah. I, I don't think people commonly squeeze anywhere near enough of the benefits or quality out of an exercise um, yeah. and how you do it in rehab. Like no one's saying that, you know, forevermore you have to squat this way, but yeah. getting the person's foot in, a, in an optimal position or whatever little technical nuance it is, I, I just think can make a huge difference to how they feel that muscle or experience the exercise yeah. and, and get and reap the rewards of it, I think. Absolutely, yeah, and I think, yeah, especially the the, the load. Like, of, of course, after an ACL reconstruction, we need to be respectful of uh, tissue healing, and we need to respect that there's going to be some some soreness um, from the recent bone tunnels and the surgery itself, and the quads are going to be struggling to fire up, and the load associated in those first, you know, probably six to eight weeks won't be that tremendous. But 
once that knee settled and you've loaded appropriately and you've got some you know good repetitious load in there and you can see that quad you know voluntary contracting and and your hamstrings are doing their thing and their calves and quads are in glutes and everything's doing their thing there's no reason why we can't start pushing hard in that sort of you know three to four to six run you know month range and that's where if your skill set as a physio really stops at getting people back into the gym and we can't take them much further than, further than the gym, then we, we need to be starting to build relationships with good exercise professionals who can go that extra mile. Um, and you hear stories all the time as well that, you know, a patient, you know, has never seen a strength and conditioning coach or they've, you know, never, you know, worked a program into their legs that have, you know, built on, you know, four sets of fours or fives or six reps, you know, per set with, you know, adequate loading and plyometrics, you know, when, when I hear people that are struggling with knee pain or have had re-injuries and they, they've missed out on the plyometrics and that heavy loading and that, you know, trying to manipulate rate of force development and all these things, it's like, yeah, okay, I can probably see why you've got a sore knee here or if you re-injured yourself because all you've been doing is, you know, body weight squats and some occasional Swiss ball hemi curls and some balance exercises. I can sort of understand why you probably have fallen a bit flat here. And I, I want to preface, I don't, you know, just for listeners, I don't think everybody needs to do or perform every lift exactly the same way as each other. But I do think as a physio or strength coach, when you're rehabbing someone, if you're striving to get the person in a certain shape or movement pattern and they can't do it, you get so much information from that that then tells you where to go next a little bit as well. I think like trying to put the person in a certain position and see how they move through that pattern, whatever it is. Yep. will ultimately give you more information than you can get on the table at times, depending yes. on what stage of rehab you're at. Yeah, agree. Absolutely. You um, you said you don't like the term conservative management. Can we can we open that box? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I think that just the term, the term conservative management almost puts a really passive, um, yeah, almost like puts a passive label on that person straight away or their rehab is very passive almost to the point where you know when I hear the word conservative it's like okay I'm just going to I'm just going to rest or I'm just going to do some very simple range of movement drills or I'm just going to take it easy I'm going to ice it I'm going to put a you know a knee brace on my knee or I'm going to you know ride a bike or I'm just going to walk or um, get manual therapy you know a couple of times a week you know like that conservative management and you hear people's stories and that's what they do um and, and I don't like the word terminology for that reason is because I don't want to instill a, a, a passive approach in someone that's just injured their ACL and they're trying to go non-operative or at least give their knee a fighting chance that they can um, see if they can go longer <laughs> without a reconstruction. And, you know, after an ACL injury, it, it should be your, you know, it should be your focus to get your knees incredibly strong. So to really you know, once the knee's quiet, of course, and we're talking, when we talk about the terminology, a quiet knee, it's a knee that's got minimal swelling, it's got almost full range of movement, and it's got no quads lag. Like when that knee has those three features, it's ready to be loaded. Um, and it can and should be pushed, you know, in the gym on your more traditional gym exercises, not spent, you know, two or three months, um, you know, doing straight leg raises or, you know, heel slides or butt kicks or, unloaded or insufficiently loaded rehab like it should be loaded reasonably tough from the get-go once that knee is quiet so um i'd rather call it non-operative rehab um, as opposed to conservative rehab 
Yeah, I get what you mean. I guess if you if you over if you over label it or the connotations are like you said, you can almost set somebody up to fail, can't you? Because you don't necessarily stress the importance of their ownership of their rehab and um, yeah. being compliant to a you know a, a, a very progressive program which they're going to need, even though it is not operatively. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, if it does, how does your management or approach differ to maybe what clinicians are currently or typically doing? Or, you know, is there places where you invest more focus than what you what you'd commonly see others doing? Um Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like I I don't like I don't honestly think that I'm I'm better than anyone or I'm doing anything different. I just I, I think part of my approach is because I've got that, you know, long um I've got that great, you know experience in exercise uh, prescription and you know i'm lucky to have that i've you know finished high school and did personal training then i worked as an exercise physiologist for you know 10 years before i graduated as a physio so i've got that sort of deeper understanding of just gym principles and progressively overloaded principles and periodization and all that kind of stuff so i apply those experiences that i've had over my life and and put that into an acl injured patient and then you know i've yeah, I, I just work a person hard, like, you, I, and I, and I, you know, I, and also, I guess, manage the person as I see them as well. Like I've an, a number of um, people that I come to that come to see me too. Um, you know, to be fair, like these days, I'm seeing a lot of people for second opinions because their ACL reconstructions, they're struggling. Like they're four months in or five months in, and. They get, they've got patellofemoral joint pain or they've got regular knee synovitis because they're overloading their knee. And so a lot, a lot of the people that I see these days, they're just they're, they're stressed, they're worried, they're concerned. So part of my approach is just trying to de-threaten the situation and, and calm them down and, and build them back up again. Um, and so part of my approach is basically sifting through what they're currently doing and trying to find holes or missing elements of what they could be doing to help them more. Um, that's kind of like my approach at the moment. But, you know, for the person that I see two weeks out, three weeks out post-op that doesn't have these niggles or these grumbles yet, um, my, my approach is, you know, very active from the get-go. I try to get those quads firing as much as possible. Um, I'm comfortable in open chain exercises based on the literature, and I know we're probably going to talk about this as well. I won't go too deeply just yet, but um, I'm comfortable with open chain exercises um, early, um, both isometrically and both actively without load um, to get those quads firing because I often find that it, it's what leads to these problems down the track when we let that quad decondition and then we ask too much of it later on. Um, so that's probably the, where I'd maybe differ a little bit compared to others but but I think in a nutshell my, my experience in um, and my background in exercise rehabilitation prior to being a physio probably differs a little bit too in my um, exercise prescription in those first three months um may be um a little bit different to some yeah no that makes sense and you know we'll get into this now i I saw that you presented to england rugby recently um by the powers of social media and on one of your slides that i could see or topics was open chain exercises um on on this topic can can we kind of i guess first hit you know when do you personally do them and why yeah, yeah. Look, as um, yeah, that was a great, great talk, and you know, um, it was, it was, it was yeah, it was lovely to be asked to have a chat to the, to the medical team and the physio team there. Um, look, I think 
Yeah, open chain exercises. I mean, I I bring them in. I'm I'm guided by the research at all times. Um, I'm not certainly a, a cowboy that's doing things reckless. You know, I'm doing doing things that um, that the research sort of tells me is is um, recommended and and suitable. And yes, there's a lot of urban myths and a lot of um, information out there um, about stretching and straining of the ACL graft if we do open chain and. Unfortunately, those kind of messages that have come out that have been hanging around for the last 30, 40 years, um, they've just, I think, once again, that knowledge translation hasn't really sort of shone through. And there's been some great papers um, and even, you know, clinical uh, guidelines recommend that open chain exercises are safe from four weeks post-op in a restricted range. And even when you look at the strain patterns on a knee extension uh, compared to Let's look at knee extension, for example. So if you, based on a, a paper of, um, uh, and so biomechanical analysis of strain on an ACL, um, they, they've seen Escamilla uh, did a really lovely review of all the papers back in 2012 that were available that looked at um, ACL strain in, in vivo as well. Um, yes, they, they did look at healthy ACLs and not ACL reconstructed graphs, but the strain on a, on a healthy native ACL when you, did an, when you did a full range knee extension, so from 90 degrees through to zero degrees, the strain on the ACL as you did that was at about 2.8% or nearly just a touch under 3%. Now, when you add load to that, and the paper had a look at when you added four kilos worth of load, um, the strain went up to about 4%, which is about the equivalent of what you do when you, have, when you do a squat. Um, and so the difference being that when you squat and you add load, the load doesn't linearly or exponentially go up, whereas it does when you do a knee extension. I think that's probably where some of the miscommunication comes through. So if we're happy to let a person squat with you know 10 to 15 kilos worth of load, but we're not happy to let, an, let someone do a knee extension with four kilos worth of load on that quad, I just don't sort of get that whole message. And certainly if you don't have any load, then the strain on that ACL is, is very minimal compared to what we encourage people to do with squats and leg presses. And then when we even get people to walk and they've looked at walking and strain patterns in ACL when you walk, the strain patterns in ACL far exceed the strain patterns on the ACL when you're sitting doing a knee extension with, with very light load. So you know, if we're encouraging people to fully weight bear and walk, as early as possible after an ACL reconstruction, yet we are worried about stretching or straining a graph when we simply take a knee from 90 degrees out to zero, I just don't get it. And so based on that information, I'm more than comfortable to allow someone to unloaded do knee extensions without load, okay, knowing that other activities are probably straining and stretching the ACL more than what I'm doing here. Um, We also know isometric um, quad exercises, so static contractions at 90 degrees and 60 degrees have no influence on the ACL graph because the greatest amount of strain seen is when you're getting up in between 0 to 20 degrees as well and specifically probably 10 to, 10 to 20 degrees is where the greatest strain seen. So if you're in 60 degrees of knee flexion or 90 degrees of knee flexion, there's no strain whatsoever on the graph. So you can hit that quad isometrically really well to keep that quad firing and that's that's where I probably in those first four weeks probably uh, differ the most um, and I'm happy to do isometrics at 60 and 90 at between you know day one post-op through to four week post-op 
After four weeks, that once again, based on the research and the guidelines out there, there's research saying that it's okay to actually add a little bit of load, um, but but load them between the angles of 90 and 40 and don't allow them to get out to um, zero or, or 30 or even get close to 30 degrees there where zero to 30 where there's going to be some strain and increased strain there. So um, from 40 to 90, there's no strain. So you can actually load a little bit between 90 and 40 from weeks four to weeks 12. Um, and then recommendations beyond that say that after after 12 weeks, it's okay to go full range with load and then progressively overload sensibly after that. So that, that's where I try to educate people in that space too um, and try to get people thinking a bit more critically about that because ultimately the quads are the single most important muscle to the successful outcome of that ACL injured patient for a couple of reasons there. If your quads have got great symmetry, um, you're less likely to re-injure your graft and research uh, will show that or sustain a second ACL injury or another type of knee re-injury. Um, you're also more likely to return back to pre-injury levels of activity with that greater amount of quad strength. Um, and then also too, in terms of osteoarthritis development over time, um, you are, uh, you've got a better chance of having um, better knee function and quality of life when your quad symmetry is better um, compared to when we say better, it's you know greater than 90% um, compared to less than 90%. So those quads really, really matter. And it probably leads into maybe your second point here is, you know, why open chain and not closed chain? Um, I assume that's where you're going, Andy. <laughs> yeah, I guess. It, uh, no, I think you've, you explained it. I wanted to know um, the why for when you yeah. implement it. Because obviously that's, you know, in ACL stuff, it's all about, we're always talking about timeframes for when you're allowed to do this and when you're allowed to do that. So I really wanted to understand, um, knowing that you would say that you put open chain exercises in earlier, um, yeah. I just wanted to know the kind of reasoning, yeah, the reasoning behind it, really. Yeah, and ultimately, it's just, the, the main reason is to stop that quad from shutting down. And, and we know that the body has got such a, a really clever way of overcompensating, and that that's the reason why we need to isolate the, the quad and, and do open chain exercises, um, but marry them into a program that's got closed chain. Like, I, I think it's really important that, you know, every rehab program has a mix of both open chain and closed chain. The closed chain, obviously, are fantastic to you know, you know, train you, train the person. As you know, we need multiple muscle groups working at the same time when we run, when we jump, when we squat, when we deadlift, when we perform our activity. So it's important that we do have, do that. But the thing, what we found in ACL patients, and the research will show this, that that ACL reconstructed patients are very clever in cheating, and when their quad is uh, lacking strength, they'll ask the hip. They'll ask the calf, they'll ask the hamstring to work harder. Um, most, most commonly, they'll ask the hip. And any bilateral task, they may even ask the other contralateral side to do more work, which puts it at a risk of a future ACL injury as well. So to make sure we are hitting the quad effectively and sufficiently, that's where we need to marry in those open chain exercises because you, you could do a Bulgarian split squat, you could do a leg press, but if that quad... Um, is not really up to speed you're going to throw that load into the hip and that hip will then adapt and compensate for far too long okay so that's where that open chain quad is super important and when you've got that quad that's just firing from the outset you're going to have better synergy there throughout rehab not 
um, all of a sudden get three months in and think, oh, hang on, I should do some open chain exercises here. I'm going to start hitting my quad. One, I guarantee you probably get some patellofemoral joint pain. And and two, uh, you know, like you got three months to make up uh, of a quad deficit there. So I think there's some safe ways to introduce quads early and open chain quads early. We just need to be sensible about the load. We need to be sensible about the types of contractions and the range of contractions as we've uh, just discussed. Obviously, for years it was it's been you know don't do cl- uh, open clinic chain exercises um, early in ACL rehab, and you know you've just cited research that um, explains why you why you can. What's putting the brakes on the wider physio community accepting it? And I don't, I, I know you can't speak for everybody, but yeah. what what's the counter? I guess um, given that there is literature that now says you can do it. Yeah, and yeah, look, those um, guidelines, they're from 2016 and 2018, so maybe part of it's just that lack of knowledge translation. Um, yeah, I mean, part part of it may be just also too, um, just the, the myths that are kicking around at physio school, you know, depends on, you know, how, how, um, how up to date, I guess, their programs are in physio school. I mean, 10 years ago, I was still taught, you know, open chain exercises, avoid, um, at, at all costs you know when I graduated I was still you know so 10 years ago I was not doing open chain exercises at all and it's really only taken me probably the last four or five years to be much more comfortable with it so even my first five years of practice I was not doing open chain exercises so it comes with experience I think and, and how you develop and grow comfortable as a clinician um, I think also too maybe there is that um, oh, that maybe that referral network you know, some physio practices do rely on their orthopedic referrals um, and maybe there's that bias from the orthopedic community where they say, you know, no open chain at all and here's my protocol, do my protocol and don't do open chain and maybe that perpetuates that that cycle as well. And I know that goes on quite a lot here in Australia and, uh, um, and what I hear, it goes on quite a lot in the States as well where the ACL rehab protocols are driven by the orthopedic surgeon, not by the physiotherapist or the um, the strength and conditioning coach, um, so yeah, it's yeah, it's a probably quite complex. Yeah, probably regional differences as well. I'm going to put you in the hot seat a little bit, mate, for because um, <laughs> you're doing well. What, what I want to know is, have you got any tips for a clinician that might be in an environment where the orthopedic surgeon is leading the the post op protocol? Um, yeah. and maybe and setting guidelines. Have you got any tips for the clinician in terms of how to breach that topic with the surgeon if the clinician would like to bring open kinetic chain yeah. exercises in earlier? Yeah, it's it's a really complicated space and, and there certainly is that power struggle that I think that most physios, even experienced physios may struggle with from time to time. Um, depends on the age of the orthopedic surgeon and their experience and whether or not there's much you know rapport there. Um, certainly from a, a young a young physio, you know, two, three, first two, three, four years out, um, you know, getting orthopedic referrals, um, it, it is quite tough to probably broach that conversation um, and, and do it in a, in a positive fashion too. It, it's very, very tough and I don't have any great answers for you. I think, the, I think one paper that really um, may open up the orthopedic surgeon's eyes is that the fact that if you go through the moon, so there's a, there's an uh, orthopedic uh, registry uh, of ACL reconstructions. It's called the Moon Registry, M-O-O-N. 
Um, and basically, it's a multi-center orthopedic network of um, ACL surgeons who, um, who basically have got this registry where they collect data and produce research. They've, they've done some wonderful research over the last, you know, 30, 40 years. And they recently, um, not not recently, they've, they've actually made, I think 2015, they actually published their ACL reconstruction guidelines. And if you look through those guidelines, from week seven to week 12, they allow, these orthopedic surgeons, they allow full range open chain knee extensions from zero to 90. Now, to be fair, a lot of the American orthopedic surgeons will do bone patella tendon bone reconstructions and the difference being that you've got two bony blocks in the tibia and the femur. So it does make make for a bit more of a stronger uh, graft and a bit more robust graft. and you know some of the clinical guidelines do stipulate. Uh, so the two the 2016 and 2018 guidelines on ACL reconstruction do say that hamstring grass maybe um, go a bit slower um, and wait till 12 weeks before you go full range. But that, that that would be those moon guidelines would be something you'd probably just throw under the nose of the orthopedic surgeon to say, hey, look, these guys know what they're talking about. This is what they do. These are their guidelines. Maybe we could. Um, you know, change the way that we do our rehab with our patients. That, that could be one way to do it. The other way, I think if you're a bit more older in the tooth and a bit more experienced, um, you know, one, one thing for me is like if I get a, a protocol from a, pa- from a patient who's been to an orthopedic surgeon, um, I'll just introduce those exercises in um, and, and say, look, just do them. Just don't, don't stress about them. We'll just do this unloaded open chain exercise and it's going to be okay. Don't worry about stretching your graft. It's going to be okay, and you're going to look good for the surgeon when you go back to see them at the six week mark, anyway. So, um, it, it'll it'll make them you know feel good as well. And I guess you know if you're really scared, you can always just slide a paper under their nose initially and just yeah, say what right. your thoughts on this, and you can you can um, sort of sense out how they're feeling about it. Yeah, that's right. And look, I mean, that's the thing. Like each per each uh, each professional's got their own interest in what they upskill their professional development in like orthopedic surgeons are busy they've probably only got time to look about the latest acl reconstruction techniques and a lot of their protocols have probably been written 10 years ago and they've just been photocopied and reproduced time and time and time again and have barely been updated or looked at um so to give them something new and to have a discussion um at the right time you know probably not you know while they're doing ward rounds to you know like you know try and find a suitable time to maybe sit down have a coffee have a chat say hey look you know have have you seen this i think going about it in the right way um is important rather than sort of come in all guns blazing saying hey look at this paper i'm going to do this that's going to put their nose out of joint um and you'll you'll lose yeah you'll lose their faith and they won't they're not going to listen to you so I, i think um how you go about trying to share that information just needs to be carefully considered hmm and kind of going into the more of the monitoring and rehab piece again um you know, we know that the unaffected leg will likely decondition during the rehab phase compared to where it was, you know, athletically before the yeah. incident arose in the first place. Um, so, you know, a limb symmetry comparison to a lower functioning limb is is not necessarily aspirational from a performance yes. or future risk standpoint. What yeah. um, what I'd like to know is what kind of baseline monitoring strategies, if any, do you uh, implement or advise implementing? over the year or a season to create, you know, healthy reference points. And, and this is going to be for people in team sports and, and professional sports. 
Yeah, and this was part of our um, the chat that I had with the the England guys. Is that um, I think you, you you said it perfectly um, over over the over a year, and even um, Brooke Patterson and the, and Rick Brooke Patterson's an ACL researcher here in Melbourne, and that they've uh, she's just recently produced some work where even at five years, there's been decond like the limb symmetry. Um, it, it changes um, significantly even over a five-year period in favour of that operated limb but ju- just due to the deconditioning of the contralateral side. So limb symmetry index is a, is a real, especially hot performance and triple hot performance, it can be very unreliable at times to, to guide your return to sport decision-making, um, particularly for an ACL reconstructed patient because we know that other limb will, will um, decondition as well if it's insufficiently loaded. So um, I think that in team sports, I think one simple strategy, and this is um, my experience working in, in professional sport, I, I was lucky enough to hold a job with a professional netball uh, team back in 2016 here in, in Melbourne. And some of your American listeners wouldn't know what that sport is, but um, your England listeners would certainly know what it is. But for the American listeners out there, it's basically um, it's kind of like basketball um, but the ball is moved up the court uh, via passing only and the players, uh, you know, it's a largely female-driven sport too um, and so you can only pass the ball up the court. Um, you can only, when you catch the ball, you can only land and take one step. Um, there's certainly no dribbling um, and there's no, no contact as well as much as possible. Um, so you're supposed to stay away three feet from your opponent um, and when you shoot for goal, um, there's no backboard. So it's <laughs> it's quite a unique sport if you've never seen it before. But it's high it's high intensity. It's physically demanding. There's lots of jumping, pivoting, cutting, twisting, evasive action. So I was, I was sort of thrown into um, the, uh, into this sport um, with these really unbelievably talented female athletes. And my strategy from the outset was like I knew ACL injuries were going to be a huge um, injury risk in my playing group um, and we all already had a player who um, was coming into the club who was six months post-op ACL Rico and we also had another player who had had off-season knee surgery. So already I knew these two players were at risk of a future knee injury and obviously the sport in itself um, lends itself to having knee injuries all the time. We also had two players on our squad who had previous injuries to their ACL. So we had, we had a group with 40, basically 40 to 50% of our athletes had uh, some kind of risk uh, and high risk at that. So I, I set about um, doing my best to lower that risk as much as possible. And one of my strategies was to take um, regular um I guess baseline measures of their single leg hop performance and their triple hop. We 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 were a club with a few resources, but we didn't have you know yeah didn't have every bell and whistle under the sun. But I knew if I could single leg hop and triple leg hop my athletes um, every fortnight just to gather some information um, that sort of tied into their strength and conditioning uh, to, that tied in their with their strength and conditioning sessions. That also functioned almost like a plyometric activity. Um, and I could gather information on. That's how I could just track and record so that if there was an injury to occur, I knew I had something reasonably close to the time of injury that I could would reflect on, that I could use that data then at a later date to, to guide rehab. I think if you, lot, if you don't have that information, and this could 
easily be done in most um, amateur sports at a professional level. It could be done pretty consistently. In amateur sports, it could be done pretty consistently as well if you've got the players on the ground and the physios on the ground and the resources there. But to take regular single-leg hop for distance and triple-leg hop for distance, um, maybe regular vertical jump height, both double-leg and single-leg, I think those three three tests there or four tests there would would be nice measures to have just tucked away for a rainy day because if you can if you know what your healthy injured athletes can do and you know what their best performance standard is you know that when you if they do have an injury unfortunately later on you know what level you need to get them back for and those those three or four tests there are quite valuable in determining someone's performance standard so that, that's how I, I've gone about my business in the past um, other clubs I know might take regular force deck data to see um, rate of force development curves. Um, you know, they might have other EMG activity. They might have other fancy technology but um, and, and maybe biomechanical markers and all that kind of stuff. But I think for those that are under-resourced, I think simple measures like that, like a single leg hop and a triple leg hop for distance, could, could um, help you um, at a later date if any of your athletes go down with an injury. So doing that frequently throughout a, a season or a pre-season might uh, help you later on if you ever need it. And I guess the the sports scientist will probably be putting their hand up now to say, um, you know, are you thoughtful of when in a training schedule or a week or a session um, those hops are done? But I guess are you looking more at the peak value so that you've got that as their sort of, you know, best example? Exactly. Like if if you're lucky enough to get through a whole pre-season without injury um, and even a a season – without injury at least you've got some running data there to to go back on and you know yeah of course if you yeah your, your pre-season injury yeah sorry if you do your pre-season screening we know your values in all your performance measures aren't going to be great we know at the end of pre-season they're going to be better um and at the you know midway through a season the end of the season they might be even that little bit better too um so yeah yeah there, there's certainly some um uh, yeah imperfections to that method um, but you're always looking for your peak um, and that would be what you'd sort of look back on. And you, if you know what that person's peak was, it's, it's nice to have because we know normative data um, it can, can be useful, but sometimes that normative data may not generalise to your um, athlete, you know, because, you know, look, we know we, there's some great normative, say, say, you know, there's a paper from Myers back in 2014 that's got single leg hop distance, triple leg hop distance, triple crossover, normative data of healthy, uninjured soccer players and basketball players from America, ranging from high school athletes to college athletes. So there's normative data in that subset of population. Um, but what if your athlete lies outside of that? What if they're a netballer? What if they're uh, an American football player? So I think sometimes those normative data papers that are out there and some of that normative data that is out there, sometimes it doesn't generalise very well either. So um, that's where it, it might be handy just to take some um, some data within your playing group and, and individually out of each athlete, you, you collect some regular data every now and then. And obviously you can see what they're getting as a, as a distance um, as your kind of key metric, are you looking yeah. at any kind of kinematics? You know, are you are you videoing them? Are you are you ever marking yeah. them? Up? You do things like 
praise the media. Yeah, if you got if you got all the bells and whistles, yeah. Um, out, out, out of the club that I worked at, we didn't have that. And and once again, from a time perspective, we um, we probably weren't. Yeah, and especially the code that I worked at, they were semi semi professional. We had twenty hours per week with the players, which um, we had to be mindful of. So you know, if you're taking, you know, you're setting people up in labs with markers and you're doing all that, and you just need the resources as well. So if you if you got the resources, go for it. Um, yes, it'd be nice to have some biomechanical analysis of your movement patterns too. But if you're an under resourced club with very little cash, um, very little uh, staff on board to help you collect data. Um, I'd, I'd go for very simple, simple stuff that, um, you know, um, is reliable. And that's where the, the hop tests, you know, it, they've been put to test quite a number of times in research. Yes, that's not perfect. And there'll be a lot of people that argue that, you know, the hop test just measures a hop. And that, I agree, you know, the hop, that's all it does measure, um, uh, both a single leg and a triple. But we also know that Failure to pass the single leg hop and the triple leg hop and the triple crossover um, and some other and you know those those three tests in particular and the six meter time test as well has been thrown in in there as well. We know that failure to pass those tests also too results in um, a, a risk of injury as well when when put in a battery uh, of tests that also include quads and hamstrings. So quads and hamstrings, isokinetic testing. Um, so I think there's some value in having the hop tests, and I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater, but um, I, I think there's some value in having the hop tests. Um, it's just, you know, how technically do you want to go with it and how much resources do you have? Do you have the markers? Great, then put the markers on. If you've got the force plates, uh, put them on as well. Um, but for those that don't have the luxury of all that tech, you know, just getting a simple distance measure and doing limb symmetry index isn't a bad way to go either. Yeah, and, and no one's saying only look at the hop test. I think is the key thing Con- contextually, isn't it? No one's no one's saying that you know with the ACL rehab or, or benchmarking in their rehab process. No one's saying do the hop test and don't test anything else. You know, you can yeah, right. if, you, if, if you're seeing that they've got a really strong hip on one side compared to the other, and a really strong quad on one side to the other. Yeah. You can look at their hop, and you might be able to sort of, uh, you know, join the dots a little bit, depending on what the movement pattern is. But. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. And I think to be to be fair, you know, you know I put much more um, emphasis on their quad symmetry result more than their their hop. Um, yes, I do want to see a good hop, and I want to show. I want them to prove to me that they can throw themselves out there on a single leg hop and stick the landing, um, and for it to look nice as well. Both, you know, yeah, for you know, if I'm doing a biomechanical test, I want some good symmetry there um, with kinematics. If um, if it's and also for distance, I also want to see it look good and feel good. Um, if it's um, a triple hop, I want to see that good explosive power and that spring. You know, those subjective qualities too that sometimes get lost in all the data. You want to hear and you want to see a nice light jump and a land, and you want to see a soft land as well. Um, so that that's where you know those those hops are nice, but you know ultimately for me the quad strength isokinetic is just king. Like I put much more credit on that than some of the hop test data, but the hop test does sort of show me um, how that person is. Uh, I guess how, how their confidence is and some of their plyometric ability too. And I think they're pretty big features of someone's successful ACL journey is that if they've got good plyometric ability, if they can change direction, if they're confident and they've got a great quad, um, that, that's, a great, that's a great outcome. And then we just get them fit for their sport 
Um, let's get them out there in the training paddock and let's train them and make them prepared for their worst case scenario so that they're less likely to break. Hmm. And I could I could honestly keep pestering you with ACL questions um, <laughs> and do a three hour episode. But, yeah, no, um, yeah. I'm just con- I'm just I'm conscious of time, but I'm definitely going to have to pester you in the future to do a, a part two, or maybe get you on with with somebody else for a panel if you're up for it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, that's fine, mate. It's it's good. Yeah, hopefully I've sort of uh, answered some of your questions and some of your viewers and your listeners have taken a few a few things out of uh, out of our chat. No, no doubt. It's been it's been very valuable just to to pick your brains on these topics, and I'm sure that the listeners will uh, will agree on that. Where's yeah, the um Where's the best place for people to follow you and you know find out about your educational content and, and track your activity? Yeah, yeah. So um, a few different spots. So I think your social media, um, my my profile on Instagram. So it's uh, at mickhughes.physio. Uh, over on Facebook, it's the same. Uh, on Twitter, my handle's a bit different. It's Mick W. Hughes. Um, but I guess, uh, yeah, my main interest is certainly that online educational platform. So I've got a website called learn.physio. Um, I've got a couple of online educational masterclasses there with my, my good mate, Randall Cooper. Um, and uh, we've got an ACL reconstruction one. Um, and a non-operative one and we've got some more content coming out we've got some um, another three or four planned for the rest of the year on a couple of different topics not uh, just ACL and we're going to get some other experts in to help us um, put those together um, yeah and then on my own personal website mickhughes.physio um, so yeah a, f- a few <laughs> a few places where people can uh, find some information about their uh, injuries and how to manage their ACL injuries a bit better no, perfect. And we'll keep people up to date with what you're up to as well. Whenever we see that you're up to things, we'll um, we'll update our our listener base as well. So, um, Mick, thanks so much for coming on, mate. It's been um, it's been excellent to chat to you and, and learn from you. Thanks, Andy. Great chat, mate. It was nice, nice, uh, nice talking to you, mate. So, yeah, thank you very much. Big thanks to Mick for coming on the podcast and sharing his thoughts and ideas on ACL rehab today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Informed Performance Podcast. Over the next few weeks, we've got a couple more really detailed, topic-heavy episodes with experts. This lineup will include a hamstring injury episode with James Moore and a tendon injury episode with Jared Antflick. To prepare you in advance, just like you may have made notes on your phone listening to Mick, I'd really encourage you to make a note or take notes on these future episodes so that you can get the most out of them, but also be deliberate in your learning. The show notes for this episode, like all others, can be found at our website, informperformance.com. You can also find us on Instagram at informperformance or on Twitter at informpod. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode with me, Andy McDonald. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.